0: This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Center.
1: Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you our international speaker, Hans George Ackler. Hans is the giving the international keynote address, Adaptive Regulatory Pathways. Hans George is based at the European Medicines Agency in London where he is responsible for coordinating activities between the agency's scientific committees and giving advice on scientific and public health issues. Prior to joining the European Medicines Agency, Hans George was the Medical University of Vienna in Austria, at the Medical University of Vienna in Austria for 15 years. He was vice-rector for research and international relations since 2003. There are many, many more accolades to mention about Hans George, but they are in your program schedule. And I'd be here all afternoon if I was to go through all of them. So, ladies and gentlemen, would you please now just welcome Hans George Eichler.
2: Thanks very much and good afternoon to all of you and let me start by expressing my gratitude to NPS Medicine Wise for having me here and for the honor to speak to you this afternoon. I took the liberty to change the title of my presentation. It's not so much about pathways really, it's about the mindset that we seek to develop. And if I were, had taken more liberty, I would probably have changed the title even further and said, this is the story of how we address different goals. And by coincidence, you have seen a variation of this this morning from the first speaker. Can you remember? The story of when a man walks into a shoe cobbler's store and says, I need a new pair of boots. Can you make it for me? And I want you to do three things. I want you to make them fast, cheap, and good quality. And that is perfectly understandable. These are reasonable goals from a customer perspective. But that shoe cobbler just looks up to him and says, sir, you can get any two of those three, but there is no way you can get all three. Think it through. And that is the dilemma that we're facing in medicine when we authorize and reimburse new products on the market. So I'll be speaking, I'll be using the word adaptive a lot. And this is not a new idea that was born out of the blue. That is an idea that was meant to address pre-existing issues, conflicting goals. What are these? The first one is known as the evidence versus access conundrum. What does that mean? We hear from some patients, look, you cannot take all the time to research a drug and authorize it, et cetera, because if I have a son with muscular dystrophy, I know exactly what will happen over the next 10 years. So anything that does not become available within the next, say, two, three, or four years will not make an impact on my son's life. If you have, and I'm saying that knowing where I am in Australia, if you have metastatic melanoma, you know now that anything that does not come out in terms of new treatment options within the next two years will, for an obvious reason, not be helpful for you. So on the one hand, we want timely access to products. On the other hand, we want good, robust evidence about products. How can we reconcile that when it takes time to develop that evidence? We know that whenever we authorize a product, when it comes to market, there is lots of uncertainties. We should never fool ourselves. That has never been different. There were always uncertainties. What I think we are recognizing increasingly is that, per se, is not the issue. The issue is, how can we reduce that uncertainty in a robust way, but again, do it fast? Another conflicting goal. We will now see a wave, and it's already sort of coming, of non-conventional products. Many of these are gene therapies, cell-based therapies. And they don't lend themselves to the usual way of evidence generation as we have seen it in the statin era. So the big randomized control trial, it will never materialize with these products. We want those products. They have a lot of promise. But how can we develop them? Again, and other conflicting goals. And then we realize, because of these other exigencies, that we need to broaden the toolbox for knowledge generation. I'm not using the word evidence here, because too often the word evidence has been used as only something that comes out of a randomized controlled trial, like the statin era. What we want is to make a full use of the tools that we have available today. And we will talk about those in a minute. But at the same time, we want the internal validity, the robustness of the RCT. How can we reconcile that? And lastly, of course, we all want to keep the innovation engine humming, because that is what delivers, hopefully, promising new therapies. But at the same time, we know that we have a sustainability problem financially. And we have heard this this morning, and you will hear probably more of it. So all of these are problems that we already face. So what can we do to address those? And the adaptive idea isn't entirely new, the word be, but it really started for me in 1992 when after the HIV AIDS crisis, Patients went to the FDA in the US and said, look, it's all very good that you maintain your high evidence standards and you deliberate forever and ever whether you should authorize these products. Only meanwhile, we are dying. Do something about it. So for me, the start of this adaptive movement was 92 when the US FDA introduced what they call the accelerated approval. It's a little complicated, but to me, that was the starting point. Europe followed in 2006. We called it conditional marketing authorisation, But the basic idea is the same. How can we reconcile speed with robustness of evidence? And we introduced risk management plans and all that. So we, we brought the tools in place. But more recently, starting around 2010, there was an idea that came out of the MIT. There was a collaborative there. And they said, well, how can we make sure that the system, being the entire ecosystem of our healthcare, will not block therapeutic progress because science is moving faster than our system. And that's probably a fair claim today. So in Europe we did a few things. We started to talk, to talk in Europe with HTA bodies, with payers. We launched a pilot project on adaptive pathways. And the European Innovative Medicines Initiative, which is a very large public-private partnership, devoted an entire project to this adaptive ideas. They called it MAPS, Medicines Adaptive Pathways to Patients. The Names don't mean that much. The idea is, how can we reconcile these competing objectives? So the question is how? Let me make clear. We don't need necessarily new pathways, new legislations. What we need is the intelligent, combination of so-called building blocks. And I understand in Australia, you now also have a, le- a legislation that would allow you to do that. I just heard it from John's carrot over here. So what are these building blocks? And I'll go through this one by one. First, start with finding an unmet need and a product that has sufficient promise to address that. So focus on the population. Is asthma, for example, and I'm asking everybody in this room, do you think asthma is a condition with unmet need? Well, it depends. 90% of all patients with asthma today are probably very well taken care of. But there is still a small fraction of patients who suffer. And once in a while, a child still dies of asthma. So is it an unmet need? Well, yes, if you're in the subpopulation. So look at the subpopulation. Look at the target group of patients you want to focus. And focus on timely access for those. Not necessarily for the entire asthma population, but for those. How do you do that? You plan an iterative development and assessment plan, where you say, OK, first we focus on these patients, then we broaden it. What are the next studies that we bring out? Knowledge generation does not end at the time of first license. So we want to increase the evidence to uncertainty ratio. And we want to do that, because we have to, by including so-called real world data. So we've heard this morning about the electronic health record. I understand that Australia is in a state of, shall we say, transition. So is everybody else. We're not there, but we are rapidly going there. We have to make use of that resource. And as new information comes in, and now we come to the next building block. We want to hopefully expand the treatment eligible population. So first we said we focus only on the few, because there is a moral, or ethical justification to do so with a smaller dossier. As the dossier grows, the knowledge, we can broaden the treatment eligible population. And in situations where you have public payers, it is not enough if only the regulator follows that path. Because if the payer, who is the second decision maker after the regulator, then says, no, we have not achieved goal. And we had that problem in Europe. We had the conditional authorization that was meant to allow patients rapid access where they needed it. We did it. And then behind us, the payer said, oh, well, that is just conditionally authorized. We will not pay for it. What have we achieved? Nothing. So, payers and regulators will necessarily have to march in sync and that means you will need not just some form of adaptive licensing but also adaptive pricing and adaptive reimbursement so price points and coverage has to also adapt and something else and i'm glad i'm here as a guest of this organization nps yes, i understand you started as an organization that wanted to improve prescribing. Well, if you authorize a product early on, appropriate prescribing is even more important than it is normally. It's always important, but here it is even more important. If you say, we focus the license on a small group of patients where there is an ethical imperative, and then physicians prescribe as they please, not good. We will see therapeutic misadventures. And we will see a huge unjustified budget impact. So ensure appropriate utilization. And lastly, that whole thing sits on the last building block that is collaboration across those stakeholders. Someone said the current healthcare system is based on the Asperger model. You know what Asperger syndrome is? The mildest form of autism. That is what you see in a sand pit, five children play, they take no notice of each other, and once in a while they start fighting. That's what we do currently. So we have the regulator, you have the payer, the HTAs, the, the, the providers. And sometimes, so we ignore each other for a long time, but then we accuse each other of doing this or that wrong. The Asperger model. So can we get away from the Asperger model? When should we do that? And the answer is, you don't have to go to every detail of that graph. It comes from a a publication from that IMI consortium. But what is meant to convey the messages across the entire lifespan of the product, starting with the clinical development or even preclinical development? You have to get all these people around the table well into the post-launch phase. So when the product is on the market, and the biggest cog on the right hand side is the post-launch phase. That is where a lot of activities have to happen. It isn't just pre-licensing. And then there was a long debate that we had in Europe, well, when should we do that? And that consortium, sponsored by the Innovative Medicines Initiative, came up with that list and said so, all of us the industry, the patient groups, the providers, regulators, payers, can we agree that the, there are engagement criteria? If these are met, then we will get together and then we'll try to bend over backwards and see that that product comes to market fast. And the criteria are criteria listed here. Can we define a target population with a high unmet need? That is question one. But that is always coupled to the second question, which is, does the product that we're looking at in an early stage hold sufficient promise to change that patient's fate? Uh, fate? So does it move the needle Likely, It's only a promise because we're early days. But if we already know this is a Me Too product, if we already know it only attacks the same receptor or target in the human body, and we cannot expect much better than we already have, why would we? So. Can we judge the promise? The next is, can a prospective iterative, pre and post uh, marketing authorization development plan be discussed and agreed upon? That is a key feature. Can we all agree that this is the plan before and after the launch of the product? Are there tools to ensure appropriate product utilization? That brings me back to that building block. We'll come to that. And are there workable strategies for payers in case the product underperforms? They call that exit strategies. Because, of course, that is a risk for a payer. They don't want to be locked in to paying a high price for a product that then underperforms. It's understandable. And the last question, which is really to the stakeholders themselves, is, is there sufficient commitment and resources from all of us to ensure the successful interaction. The last question I will not touch that's very technical about the pharmaceutical development. So you may ask yourself, what does he mean by saying an iterative uh, post-licensing development plan? So let's look into that in a little more detail. And I want to introduce you to what I call the four dimensions of knowledge generation and decision making. And I'll take you through a very complex slide very slowly. The first dimension is what I will call breadth of knowledge. Breadth of knowledge acknowledges this term that not all patients are the same. They are usual, usually substrata. We all know that some patients tolerate or respond to treatments better than other. Can we define those substrata? And how do we develop knowledge from one to another? I don't like to use the word personalized medicine because it really isn't. We are not there yet. Where we are now is, at best, stratified medicine. So, if you have asthma, is the overall condition, can you have a, a subgroup, group one in this case, for example, that are totally resistant to any treatment, another subgroup that has a different pathophysiology, and so on? So, that is breadth of knowledge. The next is depth of knowledge. When you do an RCT, you have usually answered one or two research questions, and that is it. And there is still another 50 or so research questions unanswered. That's normal. So if you have done an RCT over a six-month period, you will not know what the long-term efficacy is. You will not know what the effect is on various endpoints because you just had one, or one primary and maybe two or three secondary endpoints. You will not know anything about rare or late adverse events. And certainly relative effectiveness, which is something we all want to know, you cannot glean from one study or even two when you have three or four or five other potential comparators. So that is what I call depth of knowledge. Then obviously there is a dimension that you all know it's called time. And I have sort of graded that. You start with an initial license and pricing and reimbursement. And then as more information comes in, you revise that. And bear in mind, the word revision does not mean that someone did something wrong. Normally, when you hear a bureaucrat had to revise their decision, you would say, OK, the dumb bureaucrats got it wrong in the first place. Not the case. As more information comes in, as our knowledge base grows, we should revise. We should not be resistant to changing our previous judgment. We should adapt to it. So that is the third dimension. And then there is an underappreciated fourth one, and that is methodology. When I was trained in medicine, the wherewithal was the randomized control trial. If the RCT said this, that was the evidence. If it was came from another source of knowledge, it wasn't credible. Well, the world has moved on. We have a spectrum of methodologies. You can have a registry dedicated where you have depth of knowledge, depth of information, highly structured, quality controlled. You have e-health records, claims data. Can you glean knowledge from that? And something that is now coming up, not as a haphazard finger in the air, but as a science in itself, is extrapolation. Can you extrapolate intelligently from what you know from group one on that graph, or population one, to population two? And can you do that in a transparent and justified way? So these are the four dimensions. Now imagine a product, and you start with population one, Green means an RCT. The RCT is positive. You give it an initial license, and the payer says, yes, we will pay a certain price for that population. It doesn't end here. You can then say, well, we now do a second RCT in a neighboring population, because it's not a given that we can extrapolate from from population 1 to 2. But also, we want to know what is the long-term effect. So we enroll these patients in a non-interventional registry to get long-term information, to find out about rare adverse events, et cetera. And then, once that information comes out, you modify the license, and you may be broadening the coverage to both populations, if all goes well. And then, as more information comes in, you know for population one, do we really need to monitor them any longer? Not necessarily actively, because, We know quite a lot. So maybe we can rely on e-health record information. Can we glean more knowledge over the very long term from that? At the same time in the other population, can we roll those over into a registry? And could we now start extrapolating to another subpopulation that is broader and revise again our licensed population and our reimbursed population? And so we go on. So this is the gist of an iterative Knowledge generation plan, that's the idea behind it. And that is not for any particular drug, that is just an idealized scenario. So where are we with those building blocks? You have seen that slide already. Now, I would argue that if you use those building blocks, then you will have more flexibility in a range of what I call degrees of freedom. And I have to define that term for you, and I would define it as a key parameter that affects the way in which a new treatment is made available to patients. And it can be handled more or less flexible, depending on the attitudes, um, the flexibility, the perceptions of the various players in the healthcare system. The extent to which the adaptive mindset is adopted will drive how flexible we are with all these various degrees of freedom and how fast and swift we can react to incoming information. So these are the degrees of freedom that I would like to list, where we can always go on a spectrum, excuse me, from completely rigid to totally flexible. The first one is about the population. There was a time when, interestingly, industry said, no, 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 we're not going into subpopulations and all that. We want the largest possible label population for an obvious reason. That was sort of the statin world. Everybody and their dog had to be in the label. Well, everybody has now changed, I would argue. So I'll give this a traffic light code. And I think even industry is now realizing that that is not the way forward. Look at subgroups, look at subpopulations, what is the value in one versus the other, etc. So I think there we already have become quite flexible. There was a time when many, particularly critics of the industry and the regulators, said, no, you should never authorize a drug before you have all the relevant information. Well, that was a myth always. You never had all the relevant information. What we're now realizing is that we should be more flexible and saying, what is it that I really need at the time of first licensing? And what is the information that I can glean and generate after? So again, on that, I would argue we're becoming reasonably flexible. People understand that you cannot possibly, it's humanly impossible, to answer all research questions that there may be there before the day of initial launch. What about the degree of on-market surveillance? Much is being said about that. We have heard it this morning. Um, In the US, someone analyzed, how is the FDA doing? We got the same in Europe. How are we doing in monitoring our post-licensing commitments? How is the industry doing? But I think most people would agree by now that as it's in the beginning, we should have a strong focus on surveillance, and as we learn more, we decrease and relax that requirement. So that also gets a green light. That was the first slide. The second is already more difficult. This whole debate on adaptiveness was sort of hijacked by a very different debate, very ideological debate that is currently going on between what I would say old school evidence-based medicine, aficionados, who say, only the RCT. We will not accept anything less than that. And others who say, well, wait a minute. We now have other observational methodologies. We can do more. And unfortunately, we came into that ideological fight. And that fight is still panning out. And there is no agreement on that. But I think as we have gathered more and more experience with non-randomized methodologies, as we better understand where a bias, where confounders can distort the information, I think that will also move from to a yellow light or hopefully ultimately a green light. And I hasten to say that we're not trying to abandon the RCT standard. The RCTs are and remain the methodology with the highest internal validity. They are not a gold standard. And I'm not shy to say that. We always hear it's a gold standard. To me, a gold standard is something that delivers the truth. We know that this isn't absolute truth. Even an RCT can be biased. An RCT has sometimes problems with external validity. So it's not black and white. What we want to do is, for efficient increase of knowledge about benefits and harms, to embrace the full spectrum of methodology, horses for courses. And we want to complement the RCT, not replace it. So, and lastly, you shouldn't, it's it's very artificial to say, well, we have a pre licensing research phase and then we have a post licensing utilization or clinical practice phase. That is one life, continuous knowledge generation should be the goal. Then, the next degree of freedom is prescription steer. And here again, there is a huge spectrum of opinions. Some people say, no way. We have no handle on how doctors will prescribe. That is in some European jurisdictions. We are not even allowed to do that. Doctors have complete freedom. That's why we are very skeptical of any such endeavors. Others are more relaxed and say, well, we're more, confident that we can give some steer to prescribing. And that is a debate that is currently waging. So I've put a red light on that. I understand that here in Australia, you may be in a much better position. So I've heard this morning about how you go out, this organization, how you try to come to an agreement on appropriate utilization with providers. Maybe you're much further ahead than we are in Europe on that point. So, what can we do? Regulators can provide some steer, but never forget, regulators don't regulate the practice of medicine, we only regulate products. How a doctor prescribes their business. But what we can do is with risk management plans, we can limit a bit, so we're not entirely powerless. Payers, actually, probably have more power, because where their rules permit, they can do something like prior authorization. They can have other uh, drug utilization reviews and go back to providers. So in some jurisdictions, payers have quite a bit of power, in others not so. The right incentives for companies might also help. Of course, companies and industry has an influence of how products are prescribed. I mean, they always say, no, we cannot, but come on, why would you have a sales force if you cannot influence your customer's behavior? So of course they can do. So if you set the incentives right with a company, be that by a cap per reimbursement, be that by other ways of, reading, of reaching a managed entry agreement, but that can also help. And lastly, access to local healthcare data, and knowing what's going on, and knowing what, how the product is being prescribed, would be a great facilitator, as will academic detail, where it is feasible. So this is an ongoing debate. And lastly, price points. As I said earlier, payers are very worried about anything that is conditional, anything that is early authorization, because they feel they are then trapped. And we have heard that Sorry, I put a yellow light. I tell you in a minute why, because some payers are now coming around and in a minute. Let's talk. But what they worry about is essentially this. What is absolutely true, as I know that as a regulator, a pharmaceutical company will agree to any post licensing study that you tell them to do on the day of licensing. They see the prize, yeah, the license dangling before their eyes. On that day, you can extortionate anything you want. They will promise. Will they deliver? That's a different matter. So what the payers tell us, oh, that's all very nice, but these studies will never be forthcoming. What will we do if we pay a price, we agree to a price, and then those promised studies never materialize? We're trapped. So I try to reassure them, and we often hear about a publication from the U.S. that came out about 10 years ago from the Harvard University, a good friend of mine, who said, well, the companies are absolutely not compliant. 50% of those studies have never been started. Well, the world has moved on. We analyzed our own data, and we looked at are companies compliant with our post-licensing requirements? And the answer was, sometimes these studies start slow. That is true. But by and large, the system works. So that fear may materialize in this or that case, but on the whole, I think the system is robust. At least that's our recent experience since the change of our legislation, which happened in 2012. So we're more optimistic on this point. But then payers also say, good, let's assume those data come forward. But the subsequent data show Less value. Let's say a smaller effect size than we had initially anticipated, which is very likely. What shall we do then? So, first of all, for regulators, that is not a new scenario. That is almost standard. And I would argue that for payers, that should also not be a problem. Because you can negotiate the exit criteria or reduced price criteria, whatever the case may be, upfront anticipating that if you have a managed or some form of managed entry agreement in place. So payers can get the incentives right if they anticipated that. So you could, for example, give them a limited initial pack, um, coverage uh, label and promise an increased coverage if the studies come through, if the effect size pans out. There are various variations to this game. Now, I spoke about the yellow light. Just before I left Europe, I saw an article that Scotland is now embracing or thinking of introducing a thing called conditional reimbursement. And they want to tie it with ours, that's the European Medicines Agency's, conditional authorization. They say, whenever a product is conditionally authorized, we will conditionally reimburse knowing that things can go wrong and we will put the conditions in place so that we can extricate from that situation. Now, one last word on regulator-payer interactions. First, let me say that this is a blessed land here, Australia, when it comes to this question, at least for me. In Europe, what we have is one regulator for the whole of the EU, but when it then comes to HTAO or payers, there is this myriad of national or even regional bodies that take decisions. So it's never easy. And I will not start talking about the US. I mean, even more difficult. But here in Australia, you are, to my knowledge, the only jurisdiction in the Western world where these two people who are sitting over there, all they need to do is get together, and you can perfectly align or harmonize. So you are in a dream situation. For me, Okay, we will hear what they have to say. Can you harmonize everything between those two? Not everything, but a lot. For example, can you agree on relevant endpoints? I was once accosted in a meeting by that by a payer who said to me, hey, you regulator, I can never understand how you can authorize a single product without information on quality of life. The point is not whether he's right or wrong, The point is that you have two public bodies here who visibly cannot agree on a fundamental principle. So do we both lose trust in the eye of the public? Of course we do. So can we remedy that by getting together? We should. Can we agree on trial and study methodologies, on the interpretation of study results? What are the uncertainties? What are the effect sizes in defined subgroups? I don't find an intelligent reason Why a regulator and an HTA body or payer should not agree on that? Can we agree on post-launch surveillance for benefit risk and for value-based pricing or if you go into pay for performance? So the goal of all these exercises, and we are now doing those, is an overarching agreement on the assessment, on the assessment plan, and we hope to make this patient-centric And the underlying theme should be, look, how can a regulator say, this is important for me, or the HTA body, this is for me? It should first and foremost be relevant for the patient. And we can agree on that. And we want to reduce the white space between the license and the coverage decision, which sometimes takes two years in some European countries even longer. But does that necessarily mean that the decision has to be the same, that the regulator and the payer takes? Not necessarily. Let me illustrate why not. And that is not because we're dysfunctional. I mean, we may be, but not for that reason. You can construct, in every clinical condition, subgroups. And you know I'm hammering that theme because I think that's the future of stratified medicine. And taken. An any disease, yeah, where you can stratify, say, five or six subgroups from left to right, low, say, to high risk, or low responders to high responders, whatever you want to make it. That's easy. And the regulator can then say, we looked at benefits and harms, and we found that this drug should be licensed for all the subgroups below that line. Not for the ones with the least risk because they don't need that. The safety profile is very good, but it isn't perfect. So for all the others, we will license it. And that is what you typically read in a legal license. So far, so good. But don't forget that something else marches in sync with that subgroups. The cost usually per unit of health gain because you anticipate that the group at the far right will have, for a given price, the highest benefit. So the cost per per unit of health gain will rise from right to left. And so will, of course, the budget impact. So even without disagreeing on the science, without disagreeing on the studies, it may now well be that a payer says, fine, we accept your judgment, regulator, but For budget impact, cost effectiveness reason, we will limit coverage only to that one subpopulation on the far right. That is legitimate. It may sometimes be difficult politically, but that is at least not scientifically inconsistent. Can we agree on that? So I come to the end. My conclusion is this whole idea of adaptiveness is an attempt to address inevitable problems that we have and have always had because we live in an imperfect world. And we believe we can address those issues by way of adequate pre-planning and collaboration of stakeholders. And let me remind you that a series of rational decisions taken by individual decision makers in isolation doesn't necessarily bring about a rational final product or outcome. Adaptiveness, to me, is a mindset. It's a concept, not a new formalized pathway. And as I, we certainly in Europe don't need it. We have all the flexibility in our legislation to enable that. And I understand that in Australia, now you have the same. And for those of you who don't like the idea still, and says, no, we don't want to go that way of adaptiveness, let me remind you, the antonym of adaptiveness is rigidity. Do you want to be there? Probably not. So, thank you very much for your attention.
1: Thank you, you. Nosteen. Thank you so much. Indeed, Hans George, the time has flown, but I was so engrossed, I didn't—I forgot to give you the time. I'm sorry. <laughs> was, no, no, no. It was utterly, utterly uh, engrossing and fascinating. We're not going to have much time for questions, but I will take one or two brief questions if you want to jump to the microphone. I have one for you. Um, it's in me, And it'll be very interesting to hear our next panel on the Australian experience. It's very exciting to hear about um, adaptiveness and, and, and the way you've unpacked the, the need to reconcile speed with robust evidence. And in the back of my mind, and this is the journalist in me, can't help but say, what about mistakes? what about pushing that need for adaptive uh, speed mm-hmm. so much that somewhere along the line there must have been a mistake a major mistake that you're aware of and the consequences of uh, affecting many do any come to mind and what are the lessons learned from that
2: well there, what do you mean by a mistake that's very important mistakes are something where you do something wrong getting new experiences where you find out that something that looked promising had some unintended consequences. Is that necessarily a mistake? I would argue it's not a mistake. It was an honest attempt to make something available soon. And the mistake only comes in if you then sit on your hands. Mm. All the scandals we had, starting from thalidomide. The thalidomide scandal, let's go back to that. It was not the scandal that it happened. And everybody, I think, knows what what happened then. That was not the scandal. Because it was totally unanticipated. At the time when thalidomide happened, no one gave any consideration that a drug could potentially do something that was called teratogenic. The scandal was that it took probably 10,000 babies to be born before the system reacted. So if tomorrow we had a new drug, do a thought experiment. We have a new drug. It passes all the teratogenicity tests, but it does exactly the same as thalidomide. If we find that after two cases, make it three, and we react fast, Mm. then the system functions. If again, we need hundreds or thousands of cases, then we're dysfunctional. That would be the mistake. That's why I put so much emphasis on react fast to incoming information. I hope that answers your question.
1: No, it does. It's a terrific answer. Um, We're going to have to move it quickly, but this is too fascinating not to take a couple of questions. So I will take uh, one here, and if you can keep it brief, please. Okay. So uh, Barbara Minces, University of Sydney.
0: Uh, If I understand, so if I wanted to go back to thalidomide, the real innovation and regulation that was brought in post-thalidomide was the idea of... Uh, having at least a base of knowledge from RCT evidence that uh, there was a drug benefit outside of just wishful thinking or expectations. So if I understand adaptive pathways, uh, the idea is really to remove that uh, because there are some patients, say, with, with melanoma, who advanced melanoma, or other conditions who might need a drug right away, if we wait for the RCTs, that's too long. We have a compassionate access program. How does that, like most countries, European Union has compassionate access for people who are in these extreme situations to get drugs that are not on the market yet, why not go in that direction rather than actually uh, attacking that innovation that was brought in that was really a rigidity, so it it switched the burden of proof onto the company to having to show that their drug was effective rather than Uh, to show that there was harm. So your question is why
1: not ramp up the compassionate program? Well, no,
0: why not just continue to um, depend on this dual Mm -hmm. system of having at least a base standard that's not perfect, I agree, plus compassionate access versus uh, something that erodes that base system.
2: Allow me to very briefly clarify one thing. You said adaptivist wants to do away with the RCT. Sorry, not the case. Absolutely not. And you may recall that example where I had these four dimensions. The first was an RCT. When we can do an RCT, of course we want to do it. It is still the most robust route to knowledge generation. Absolutely. So I'm sorry if that didn't come out clearly. This is not about abandoning the RCT per se. Can we do it more focused? Can we do it perhaps a little shorter? But by all means, let's not throw overboard the baby with a bath. So the RCT per se is not the issue. What the issue is, speaking of RCTs, is that we now see more and more uh, products where we cannot do an RCT. And we have a number of examples now where we wanted an RCT, and these were gene therapies, these were cancer therapies, where for various reasons, right or wrong, Many people would argue you cannot do an RCT for ethical reasons and other reasons. So, But sorry, that is a misunderstanding. About compassionate use, I don't like this compassionate use idea at all. Because what is the benefit of going compassionate use? It's the worst of all worlds. Either the product is not helpful, then you're exposing patients to the same risk, whether it's within a trial or compassionate use, the biological outcome is probably the same. And you get less information, not in a structured way, than you would if you put them in a trial. So compassionate use may have its place. I'm not sort of disregarding that. But why not focus on knowledge generation that is pre-planned and uses the best methodology, rather than go down the compassionate use? Um, route. I think that is less robust.
0: I think the concern is the the level at which the, pro, the the threshold at which drugs might be brought to market for a broader population.
1: I'm going to have to move that on. Thank you very much for that question. It was a great question. Move it on to the last question, uh, and if you can keep. Great it. Great talk,
2: <laughs> Hans George, um, Peter Turner, NPS Medisomise. Have you considered political <laughs> risk when it comes to safety? Most regulators don't get rewarded for taking risks by their political masters if they get it wrong. So there was a noise when you said... Yes, the could key- you just re-
1: repeat the the of question? Of the first question, do
2: you consider... Political risk political. for oh. getting it wrong in respect to safety. It seems there's not a lot of room to move for a regulator. That is absolutely true. Um, there is a total asymmetry, of course, um, in the reward-punishment system for a regulator, yes. And that is the reason why we need, I'm very blunt about this, the support and the wish from patients. So this whole thing that I just described was not the regulator's idea. It was the idea by patients. And the extreme case, and I hope we won't go there, in Europe, I don't know about here, but in Europe we probably won't go, This right to try. That is the extreme. Um, I'm not sure this is a brilliant idea, but we had to listen to patients who said, look, why, why another 10 years to wait?
1: Okay, fascinating talk and great questions. Thank you, Hans-Georg Eichler, please, thank you.